I was, um, as I was preparing for today, I just felt an overwhelming sense of God's pleasure in each and every one of you. I felt like a, a, the Spirit just calling to each and every one of you and just saying, you're more than you think you are. You're more than you think you are. And I hear the Spirit of the Lord saying that He has promised you something outrageous. And those promises are true. Have you ever wondered about Abraham when God said to him he would make of him a great nation? At that time, he was old, his wife was barren, and he was in a foreign land. And yet at that moment, the promises of God superseded his circumstances. And I'm here to tell you today, church, that that is what God is saying to you. That his promises supersede your circumstances. And he will work to bring about what he has promised. Amen. As we share around this revival culture, Lord God, we, I ask that you would come and speak to every heart. I just speak to every dormant, lost, um, hopeless place in every heart here, and I say, come alive in Jesus' name. I just proclaim over every person here, hear the word of God to you. Hear the voice of the Spirit to you. Be transformed by his presence. Become people of his presence. Lord, I ask that as we share around this word that you would transform our lives. In Jesus' name, amen and amen and amen. Can we give the Lord a hand? I don't know why, I just like it. <laughs> so we have been speaking about revival culture for two weeks. We are continuing our third week here and we are speaking about valuing God's presence. We are people of revival and we are people of his presence. That's who you are. Listen to me carefully. I, I feel like if you get nothing out of this, I want you to get this. You're not going to get nothing, but, but say you only have to get one thing out of this. Is that God is with you. And with God, nothing is impossible. We have as much of God as we are prepared to believe. The lack of his presence is nothing more than a perception in our minds. And God wants to come and rewire our minds to let us know what is true and that we are meant to be transformed by that. God has promised South Africa a revival. And guess what? You are that revival. I don't care who's in power. I don't care who our finance minister is. Well, I do care, but uh, in light, in light of your future, I want to tell you that those are not the determining factors. Those are not the determining factors. God is with you. That's what determines your success or your failure is how well you will believe that. You will believe that. Amen. So there is a fascinating story. It's one of my favorites. In light of the fact that we've just finished the Olympics, you'll see why it's just it's so, so pertinent. But it's in 1 Kings chapter 19, and it's the story of a prophet by the name of Elijah. This man was wonderful. He did great things. And he had great 
down moments. And every time I examine my humanity and I have great victories and then I have great moments that are just not to be reported on Facebook. You know those moments? I, I look at Elijah and I say, thank you, God. You used him so much. You can use me too. In, later on, James, the brother of Jesus, would, would describe um, Elijah as a man just like you and me. But this man, just like you and me, did astounding things. In 1 Kings 18, the chapter before that, it describes something. So he's living in Israel, and all of Israel apparently, or most of Israel, is going out and worshipping this new god, Baal. You know, he's like the flavor of the month. Or Baal, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce it. I wasn't there. But they are, they are out worshipping him and just forgetting the God who gave them that great land in the first place. And Elijah fed up. Because the land is going through a drought because of this idol worship. He's absolutely fed up and he goes to the king and queen, Queen Jezebel. You can never say that name without a little bit of a shudder. She was like the Cruella de Vil of her time. And he goes to them and he says, I'm challenging you. To a duel. He builds a, he tells them to build an altar, he builds an altar, and he says, Go take a cow, slaughter the cow, and you put it on your altar. I will put one on my altar. You call to your gods. And I will call to mine, and the God who answers by fire, that's the God. I mean, it was spectacular. Church, can you imagine? The whole of Israel came out to watch. Um, it talks about 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah, who was like the female version. They're all standing around. It says, the prophets of Baal, Baal cut, the, cut themselves, um, cried out from morning to night, Elijah standing on the side, mocking them when nothing's happening. What is your God sleeping? Try harder. I mean, it's, it's like, um, I don't know, what you call it, actuality TV, reality TV, like one-on-one. I mean, it's like, you wanted to be there. And lo and behold, nothing happens. Elijah calls out to his God. Like, oh my word, if there are going to be action replays in heaven, I want this one. So fire comes out of heaven, bam! Elijah has wet the whole altar and the sacrifice. He's made trenches around it, poured water in there. I mean, it is like the perfect circumstances not to burn. And this fire comes out of heaven and destroys everything. Water, altar, animal, and all of Israel is like, what? Elijah then takes a sword and, I mean, there were 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. And he killed them all. I mean, I just, I don't know. I don't even know what that would look like. You know, that would be like, but anyway, crazy, crazy stuff. He's just had this monumental success. Monumental. All of Israel turns back to God and says, we'll serve him. The Bible says this. <laughs> then he has this thing he calls rain, and I won't go into that. It's just a whole other sermon on its own, and it begins to rain. The Bible says this. Cassisomania, you have got nothing, nothing on Elijah. It says he, he gathers up his robe, and he runs to the town of Jezreel, which was a major city in those days. And he outruns the King Ahab, who's in a chariot. How do you do that? How do you do that? I mean, oh, it must have been fabulous. I mean, 
I just can't imagine how great they must have been. He gets there and he hears this word from oh, Jezebel, all do a shudder. <laughs> and he hears this word from her. I don't know if he actually spoke it to him or he just heard the message, but he, she says, let these gods of mine do to me ever so severely. She could say that because she'd just been proved that they didn't exist, so she was, she was on a good record then. But nonetheless, she said, let, let my gods treat me badly. If at, not this time tomorrow, I don't do to you what you did to my prophets. I mean, this is like a threat. Elijah being the big, strong, awesome prophet of God turns and runs in the other direction as fast as he can. Ever felt like that? He runs to a particular tree in the wilderness, has this encounter with an angel, which is also another story. And then the angel gives him special food. And he goes for 40 days and 40 nights into the wilderness. And he comes to Mount Horeb. And there he has the spectacular, spectacular, spectacular encounter with God that I want to talk to you about. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to read it. From 1 Kings 19, from verse 9, the second half, it says, Oh, sorry, I'll start at the beginning. There he went into a cave at Mount Horeb and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Do you think God knew? I think Elijah didn't know. He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. Do you sense a little bit of self-pity there? There is. It's like a great big dollop right there. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Listen to this. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart. What kind of wind does that? And shattered the rocks before the Lord. Guys, Guys, a wind came and tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks in pieces. Later on, it talks about, he, uh, supposedly Elijah is standing at the mouth of the cave. Later on, it says he comes out of the cave. I think he saw that wind and he retreated back into that cave so fast. I mean, I don't, I don't know what kind of wind does that. After the wind, there was an earthquake like he needed one. You know, the, just the mountains being torn apart. Now there's an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. Just in case anything was left standing. You know, just a little bit of fire there. And after the fire came a gentle When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He has a little trick. If God asks you the same question a second time, don't give the same answer. It's likely the first answer wasn't right. He replied with the same answer, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, 
and now they are trying to kill me. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Guys, he doesn't, he doesn't even answer his problem. He's like, I'm not interested in your problem. The solution is not what you think it is. Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Mahola to succeed you as prophet. In those days, you had to have a strange name to be famous. This is the way it was. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve, now he answers his, his question, and he's moaning. He says, yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, Baal and all whose mouths have not So here's the thing, God's presence is the most valuable commodity in the universe. It makes the difference between success and failure. It transforms your humanity into something supernatural. It takes you from ordinary to extraordinary. When God first created mankind, when God first created mankind, it says in Genesis 2 that he, he molded him from the dust of the earth and then says, into him and he became a living being. You live because of God's presence. When Adam and Eve sinned and decided to run their life their own way, God said, I'll give you what you desire. And guess what? God breathed out. And he said, man, have a go. Try without me. And we have approximately 5,000 years of recorded biblical history where they just made one big mess up after another. And finally, in the fullness of time, they cried out and said, God, guess what? We realize we can't do it on our own. We need you. And God said, okay, I will come. On the greatest rescue mission ever, and he came to earth and he died a death that was excruciating and he paved a way. Guess what? That the presence of God And to all who call in the name of Jesus, guess what? Being born again is not just an act of, of a human decision. It is a supernatural work of the presence of God saving you. So that you can become what you were originally created to be, a human being inhabited by the presence of God. Not only that, he poured out his spirit in such a way that not only can you be inhabited with his presence, but you can carry his presence. And that signs, wonders, and miracles are meant to be your portion. That there are no such things as impossible situations because the presence of God is on you. And he will make a way and he will change circumstances and he will deliver you and he will heal and he will, he will give you the perseverance to go through the difficult times. So Elijah is facing this terrible moment. He's had this incredible encounter. And now his life is in danger. And being the melancholic grain man of God that he is, he's having a down moment. And what does he know? He only knows one thing. Is that in order to survive this, I am going to need God's presence. Have you ever wondered why he ran to Mount Horeb? 
you didn't wonder, please would you just wonder for a minute so that when I tell you, you will find it interesting. Mount Horeb was the place that Moses encountered the burning bush, where God first introduced himself to the nation of Israel. Mount Horeb was the place that when they came out of Egypt, Moses brought them to and he struck the rock to bring out water. Mount Horeb is the place where Moses received the Ten Commandments and Israel entered into covenant with their God. Mount Horeb is the place where Moses cried out and said, show me your glory. And God hid him in the cleft of the rock, maybe the same one that he struck to bring out water, who knows. Hid him in that cleft of the rock and caused all his goodness to pass by. Elijah knew that Mount Horeb was the place of God's presence. And when he was at his lowest moment, he said, I need God's presence above all else. You know what is so great about the dispensation in which we live is that Elijah had to go to a mountain to find God's presence. We never do. It's almost like God came and put Mount Horeb in your heart for him. Now, Mike's saying thank you. But he came and put the place of his dwelling place in your heart. Luke 5 verse 16 tells us how Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. What's it talking about? It's talking about a lifestyle that he lived. Not of having to go to place to, from place to place to find God's presence, but that he he often need moments of withdrawing from the busyness of life, from the, the demands of his followers, from the, his own personal interactions with people. He needed a time to be alone with his father and to, to find that mountain in his own heart, to still the noise of the surrounding, to find that place of presence in his heart. The Bible also talks a few verses later when Jesus was being questioned, he made this answer, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son does also. Not only was he having personal times of just growing in his knowledge of his father, praying, reading the Bible. He didn't have the Bible those days. He actually had to go to synagogue to read the Bible. But nonetheless, having these personal times with God, it says that throughout his day, he was listening to the voice of his father. He was finding a place where that mountain was overtaking everything else. And that he was being led and directed by his heavenly father in everything. What does this mean for us? It means that we find God's presence in, in very practical ways. You know, when we hear this term, carry God's presence, host God's presence, be people of his presence. Sometimes it's just a nebulous concept and we're like, well, what does that mean for me now as a human being in my job, with my family, in the 
hectic problems that I'm facing. It means two things. It means set aside time to pray and read your Bible daily. Guys, it's that simple. It means every day. Speak to your Heavenly Father and read your Bible. And some of you, I know, I can see the guilt trip starting in your heart. I'm like, gosh, I knew I shouldn't come to church. It always makes me feel bad. Guys, this is not meant to make you feel bad. Listen, if you felt that, I want to speak to your heart and say this. You are right with God. There is no condemnation in the kingdom. This is not what makes you right, but this is what makes you a person of his presence. This is what brings the joy and life of God. Find a way. Take 10 minutes when you get to work. Lock yourself in the bathroom in the morning if you have to. Find a way to weave these things into your life because it will set you free. Really, it will bring you to life. You know, sometimes when I read my Bible, it's startling. It's like, oh my word, I'm transformed by that. Sometimes when I read my Bible, I want to be honest. I just read my Bible. It's just very ordinary. It's very, I don't feel any different afterwards than I did before. No angels arrive. There is no violence in the background. I just read my Bible. But I want to promise you that my day is different because I did. Because I've aligned my mind with the principles of the kingdom. I've aligned my thinking with the way God works. And I, whether I feel it or not, I'm a little bit different. I'm a little bit more like Jesus. I'm a little bit more understanding of his ways. I really did this. I did an experiment one day. I decided not to pray the whole day. I know. It's horrible. It's horrible. And then I decided the next day to pray about every, everything I was going to do. I, I, I determined to pray and ask God to be with me. I prayed for my family. I mean, I, there were lots of prayers before that for my family. So I knew that that one day wouldn't like be just devastation. But the next day I prayed about everything. And I, you know what, guys? The, the difference between the two days. I did science at university, so experiments are just part of my makeup. So this experiment told me this. Life is better with Jesus. I was blown away at the difference. The day I didn't pray, stuff was just hard. You know, I had to be smart. I had to think hard. I had to work hard. I had to guard my words. I had to, like... I'd get around the politics of situations, and it was, it was just, it was a ruthless day. The day I prayed, it was like everyone loved me, everyone listened to what I said, I said dumb things, and they still thought I was great. It was marvelous, it was marvelous. Pray. <laughs> and the next thing we're going to do is we're going to be aware of God's presence every day. Because that's how simple it is. It means simply turning your attention to the fact that God is with you. When you feel those negative emotions rising, it's just don't put your attention on them. When the fear, the anxiety, the, the pain, the anger, whatever rises up, just turn your attention away from it and turn it to Jesus. Oh boy, am I preaching to myself. I have my husband in the front. He keeps me honest.
the next thing he did, he had to discern God's voice amongst the many, many voices that came. And it was surprising what God's voice really was. But we had that wind and that earthquake and that fire that came. And, you know, the Bible talks about God wasn't in those, but he was in that small, small voice. But I think of it like this. Have you ever dropped a stone into a pond or into water or into a bath or somewhere? And those ripples that radiate out from it. What if when Elijah went to stand outside that cave, God was there. And the ripples that went out when his voice, his whisper was dropped into our creation. Oh, when was a wind that shattered a mountain. Was a fire that consumed was an earthquake. And so those were manifestations, effects of his voice impacting creation. But they weren't his voice. And what are we saying in this? Or what Elijah discovered is that he had had this cataclysmic experience where fire came down from heaven. Have you ever had something that was just so God, that was so amazing? And how many of you had a very depressing time afterwards? It's like because that becomes your standard. It's like now, so fire came out down from heaven. So God, if I'm going to have your presence today, it must look like, I don't know what. What's more than fire coming down from heaven? I don't know. A meteor must fall in front of me. And then it's like every day something more spectacular is going to happen. Otherwise, God has left me. But what Elijah learned is that God is in the spectacular, but he's also in the mundane. And we have to learn to discern his voice, not only in the miracles and the healing, which are great and fantastic, we have to learn to discern his, his gentle whisper when you're sitting in an interview and you're nervous and you're, you're sweating. And I know you don't sweat, but imagine you were. And that, that, that sense of everything's going to be okay comes and it's gentle and it could be missed, but you turn your attention to it and, yes, God is there. Everything's going to be okay. The Bible says that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, able to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart, dividing between full and spiritual and narrow. What's great about God's Word is his, the Bible and his, his spoken thoughts to you, those senses of his presence coming to you, is that they separate in your mind and in your heart what's true and what's not true. And when you believe in truth, everything is right with the world. When you believe in lies, everything is chaotic, hard and difficult. And his, his voice to you will separate the two and he will show you what's right and true. He'll set you free from the the difficulties, the hopelessness, the powerlessness, the sense of abandonment, he'll set you free from these things to be great. And it may not be a fire that comes down from heaven that does it. It may just be a sense, a voice, a, a little whisper in your heart. And if you're too busy or too distracted, you may miss it. But when it comes, the effect on you will be like shattering mountains. The effect on you will be like earthquakes, fire, transformation in your environment. Everyone will know that there is something different about this person. 
so we can come to know that God is in the mundane as well as the spectacular. God's voice sounds like a flow of spontaneous thoughts. That's not my statement. That's Mark Berkler's, but a really great definition of God's voice. And that God's voice is confirmed by the Bible. And it is confirmed by the peace in your heart. That's how you know you got it. It sounds like something that would be said in the Bible, and it sounds peace. It brings resolution. Last of all, we're going to have to follow his lead. Elijah was given three instructions. First of all, he had to go and crown a king or anoint a king over Aram. That sounds all, all very ordinary, you know, just in the, uh, an action in the everyday life of a prophet. But it's not so ordinary. Aram was their avowed enemy. This king that he was meant to anoint was going to slaughter Israel. Slaughter them. That's the interesting thing. God is going to lead you into nice situations. He's also going to lead you into some really hectic situations. He's going to lead you to friendly people, and he's going to lead you into a relationship with very, very difficult people. Everyone say, oh my word, I don't know if I want to be a Christian anymore. Don't say that. No, no one, t- you know, when they take up the altar calls, calls and you give your, you know, you raise your hand and want to be with Jesus, no one, no one tells you about the tough times. Yes, I'm so sorry, but the tough times are coming. But here's the thing, because God wants to change those people. God wants to change those circumstances. And guess who his agent of change is? It's you. It's you. Jesus said this, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. God loves sending you into trouble. (laughs) Because you are the peacemaker that will change it. Last of all, he will lead you to your family. He had to go and anoint a king of Israel. And you know what? Sometimes our families are the hardest place. I want to tell you this. When I gave my heart to Jesus, I felt God challenge me to pray that my entire family would come to know him. You know, when I, I actually wrote it in my journal. And when I wrote it in, I, 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 I remember that feeling of absolute, like almost disbelief. It was like, I'm writing this down, but I know that this is never going to happen. As I speak, there is not a single member of my immediate family that is not serving the Lord. Not a single member. You know, when you have to write those engaged cards, I have to think really hard because all the closest people around me are saved. It's so great. God is going to lead you into your family and your community of origin. And he's going, he's going to bring about a radical transformation. They need to see that you are different because of Jesus. Don't give up on them. And last of all, he is going to lead you to make disciples. You knew discipleship was going to get into this sometime. John 20. Jesus, remember when I said he He breathed back into us when we became born again. But this is the time he actually did it with his disciples. He said to them, he's he's died, he's risen again. He walked through a wall to get to them. They were behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. At this moment, he walked through a wall. I don't know what that does for your fear. If you're afraid and you're in a locked room and someone walks through the wall, you know what I'm saying. But nonetheless, 
he calmed their fears by saying, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed, breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy But he said this, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. Apart from the crucifixion thing, everything else of Jesus' life is your inheritance. The victories, the miracles, the profound words, the delightful relationships, the impact, the impact on lives. It's your portion. It's your portion. Amen.